Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. everyone and welcome to the History of England, episode 358, New Councils. I mentioned I was going to have a period of shout-outs for independent podcasters and today's recommendation for your list is the Anglo-Saxon England podcast. You have to be quite careful looking for it because it's not mine of the same name. It's by Evergreen on Apple but it is in fact created by a proper historian, Dr Tom Kearns. And we all love the Anglo-Saxons, do we not? It's an in-depth history from the fall of Roman Britain, focusing on political and cultural history. Tom uses a lot of written sources, interpreted then through the lens of archaeology, along with lots of historiographical problems, which are a real hoot for this period, as you know. I think it appeals to everyone, whatever background you have in the topic. So check it out on your podcatcher of choice, the Anglo-Saxon England podcast. Well then... Parliament was dissolved again. Now I know there are a lot of theories about who was at fault here. A parsimonious bunch of well-off gentry obsessing about their constituents, egged on by picky troublemaking lawyers in Parliament, or a king with ideas above his station. Not that he, or indeed many people, would have recognised any king plus level, but you know what I mean. But look, over the last few years, Parliament has come to be more soluble than a brace of lightly boiled aspirin. I mean, really, ever since Jimmy One's day, really. Can we at least agree that while there's no questioning Charles's right to dissolve Parliament, well, unless you read Edward III's statutes, of course, it isn't normal, is it, all this dissolving? And in 1629, there were plenty of other people feeling that things were just not normal. More than dodgy politics stalked the land. There was also economic recession and dearth, with food riots in Malden, Colchester, London and the West Country. Some of this was politically motivated. John Eliot's constituents made trouble in sympathy with his parliamentary plight. We'll come on to Eliot's plight in just a mo. There were libels appearing right under the Privy Council's nose. One at St Paul's Cross roundly informed Charles that since he had lost the hearts of his people, he was no longer king. So there. Libels accused William Lord of being the fountain of all wickedness, which must at least be considered impolite. The Privy Council were rattled and guilty on occasion of overreaction. At a food riot in Essex, Anne Carter and her sister earned the proud distinction of being the only food rioters to be executed in the 17th century. Now that, my friend, is the pub quiz question to end all pub quiz questions. Possibly a little obscure. The point is, there's more than a bit of panic going on. And it's worth noting that in most of these areas of trouble, 
part of their fuel was provided by the force of radical Protestantism. And as we know, Charles is not at home to Mr and Mrs Puritan, or indeed any of the little Puritans. It was not helped by the fact that Charles's vipers, the nine members who had led resistance to the adjournment of Parliament, had been lobbed gently through the basketball hoop that was prison. Prison is a funny sort of beast in early modern times. If you are relatively upper crust, you have really quite a lot of freedom and access, and there was a steady stream of high-profile people visiting Elliot in his cell. Plus, Selden and Elliot's resolution number three, the one about being a traitor if you paid customs dues, struck a chord with some merchants, who took as a green light to be good citizens and adopt tax-avoidance strategies. The world turned upside down, as twere. So, good people, you and I now, did you but know it, are drawing aside the curtains that divide us from a famous period in English history, although I'm clearly guilty of making too hard and fast a definition of when the period actually starts, but, accepting my fault, a period which goes by the name of the personal rule of Charles I. Or at least, that's what it's called now. It didn't used to be called that. It used to be described with a phrase said in ringing tones while knocking back a couple of pints of sack or good claret wine and weeping bitter tears, along with paeans to English liberty, followed by a severe headache the following day and two more likely bold aspirin. The eleven years tyranny, sir. The eleven years tyranny, sink me. Or alternatively, you might have become misty-eyed and talked dreamily of eleven years where God was in his heaven, and a noble, gentle king led us into eleven halcyon years of unrivalled peace and prosperity. Or as Clarendon would put it, the greatest calm and the fullest measure of felicity that any people in any age had been blessed with, to the wonder and envy of all parts of Christendom and I'm sure that Felicity agreed. But we'll talk about how the rest of Christendom viewed it in a wee while, and they were more than a little disparaging, it has to be said. Your average 17th century noble didn't see it as the job of kings to stay safely at home admiring the artwork when he should be out kicking bottom, breaking heads, and making your kingdom feared and your enemies grovel in the dust. But of course, many would with some justice compare those years both to the civil wars that follow but mainly to the horror that was being played out at exactly the same time in Germany, in homage to the glory of kings. Looking at that horror, the Earl of Dorset breathed with rather smug wonder in 1634. When were our days more halcyon? When did the people of this land sing a more secure quietus? It does indeed seem that some sort of Rubicon had been crossed and Charles was not hiding it. In a proclamation of the 27th of March, he made it quite clear. We shall account it presumptuous for any to prescribe at any time unto us for parliaments. Now that seems clear enough. Even without that, the post-mortem was going on and the verdict was mixed as to who had been at fault for the dissolution. Simmond Jews, a Puritan who would fight for Parliament but was not to be considered radical enough to escape Pride's purge, kept a journal. His reflection was firstly just sad, really. He called the dissolution the most sad, gloomy and dismal day for England 
that happened in 500 years last past. Well, that takes us back to 1132, so, you know, worse than the anarchy when Christ and his saints slept, worse than the Wars of the Roses, so definitely poor then. But although he would fight for Parliament, Dews did not hold Charles responsible for this one. He blamed... Divers' fiery spirits in the House of Commons were very faulty and cannot be excused. So, it was time to move then to the new councils to which Charles had referred in the past with possibly a sinister twitch of the eye and a purring cat on his lap. While firmly putting the idea of any more parliaments behind him, Charles recognised that he needed to explain himself and what he had done to the public sphere, if you like. So in that proclamation of the 27th of March, he went into it in some depth, laying the blame for everything on a group of malignants in Parliament, just like Simmons' fiery spirits. This group, who for entirely malicious reasons, sought to, in his words, deprave our government. While Buckingham still lived, the Duke had been the focus of their malice, but the veil had been ripped away when he died and their secret desires laid bare. To cast our affairs into a desperate condition, to abate the powers of our crown and bring our government into obloquy. I had to look obloquy up. Abuse, basically. But you probably knew that or guessed it from the sense. Nor did he stop there, dismissing Eliot's remonstrance of three points by denying it had been approved by the whole house and threatening to punish anyone who claimed it had been. He emphasised the point again about Parliament, that he would only be more inclinable to meet in Parliament again when our people shall see more clearly into our intents and actions, when such as have bred this interruption shall have received their condign punishments, when those who are misled by them shall come to a better understanding of themselves. This has something of the ring of the I'm-not-angry-just-disappointed approach. Either way, as far as he was concerned from now on, kings would be doing it for themselves. It's very difficult to know how to take this proclamation. Was it just propaganda, there to justify his actions after the fact and pass any blame elsewhere onto any small group he could manage to? Or was this Charles's real view of the way this Parliament had gone and why it had ended as it did? I must admit that I have to agree with Dews that the failure of the 1629 Parliament cannot be laid entirely at Charles's door. Although Charles's attempt at compromise was pretty limited, Parliament surely also showed itself as extremely intransigent. Though fair dues, they had been let down once before with royal backsliding on the petition of right. It's unsurprising they wanted a clear precedent to embed the practice in law and custom. So we can draw back the curtains and see for certain what I thought I knew about the new stage of history. The next wooden O, as Billy the Bard would have it, and declare the start of the personal rule, or 11 years tyranny. The first wooden O of his reign has given us a few things to reflect on, I think. So, let us reflect together, just for a moment, shall we? Between March 1625 and March 1629, he had tried to rule in partnership with Parliament, very much on his own terms, and many themes have already been established, I think. He faced, in the English Parliament, pressures that were difficult to manage in terms of religion, foreign policy, 
Parliament's attitude to what level of public funding was reasonable and what level of consultation was commensurate with the Constitution. He had demonstrated a genuine desire to work with Parliament, but to work with a Parlement à sa mode, as the French ambassador remarked, a Parliament that adopted and followed his thinking and policies without question. He had proved that he had some inclination to compromise, but very much again on his own terms and to a pretty limited degree. Charles had demonstrated that he had an unfortunate habit of confusing a difference of opinion with disloyalty and even potential rebellion. They had all reached a pretty pass then by 1629. He firmly believed that it was time to just stop talking now and that a period of peace and quiet was needed to let normality be regained and to leave proper government to him and his grand nobility and the Privy Council. These first years also, in quite short order, had laid out the direction of his religious settlement. Now, Charles's head would have exploded if it was even suggested that he was introducing innovation into the Church of England, and he had denied it until he was blue in the face, and clearly very deeply believed in his commitment to, to the Church that he thought had been established by Elizabeth. But his view can only be accepted if you also accept his view on the Church of England, which closely followed the style espoused by Arminian clerics. And it's surely possible to be just a tad cynical that his conscience would be eased by the fortunate coincidence that said clerics enthusiastically supported order, form, ceremonial and royal authority. Why had Charles established a religious settlement that so clearly overturned the pre-existing Calvinist consensus. One explanation seems to be that he took on his father's distrust of Puritans and multiplied it tenfold. The historian Conrad Russell described him as a man with a real allergy to Puritanism in all its forms. At the same time, he appeared to find it very difficult to distinguish between the moderate Calvinist and the radical Puritan, and so Calvinists all became tarred with the same brush. He saw them as a populist sect, bent on undermining the proper order of things, unity and his royal authority. On the other hand, he tended to treat Catholics that he knew personally really rather leniently. Now it would be foolish to extrapolate from all of this that the die was cast, and I have to tell you that we are hardly going into a spiral of inevitable conflict. Far from it, in fact. But we have learned some things which will generate friction. As to the Eleven Years' Tyranny versus Halcyon Days face-off, well, I have some reflections. Look, just as I desperately want to be talking about the English Revolution or the, the Dark Ages or Anglo-Saxon England, but in so doing have to run the gauntlet of disapproval from proper historians, so I am also desperate to bang the table, knock back the claret and drink to the damnation of the Eleven Years' Tyranny and sing of the good old cause. It's the way my basic political and dramatic instincts work. So sorry, Anjin San. But there is a problem. Now look, I don't want to spoil the next few episodes. But look, if I am building up to a story of a great fight for liberty by the ordinary men of women of old England against the boot of monarchical tyranny, there are a few things we might expect to happen as by the way of violent revolutions and rebellions. You might expect vast numbers of deaths at the hand of a blood-soaked tyrant, the introduction of a police state with basic rights stripped away, relentless tides of financial exactions that reduce the common people to hopeless penury, their souls crushed by the brutality of their vicious rulers until they can stand it no more and rise up, rise up to freedom, cry Harry, and all that sort of thing. 
well, sorry to disappoint you, but it's not going to happen that way. I mean, yes, there will be reasons why the killing starts, but it has always struck me that the British civil wars are remarkably and indeed distressingly free of villains. I mean, that's not to say people don't do villainous things. Prince Rupert massacres the people of Birmingham. The Earl of Derby kills 1,500 at Bolton. Cromwell is notoriously brutal in Ireland. Montrose sacks Aberdeen. The Catholic Irish slaughter thousands in 1641. So yes, terrible things happen and people do terrible things. But Charles is simply no Joseph Stalin. There are no Pol Pots around. There's not even the relentless absolutism, economic and social misery that leads to the French Revolution. And the reason why the 11 years tyranny has been banned is because it's quite possible to paint Charles as a bit of a puppet, frankly. A loving husband, very much the family man, resolute in his defence of the Church of England, eager to be a father to his people, who tries to raise money but never strays into the kind of absolutist innovation of the French or Spaniards who rules according to a traditional monarch in many ways, who spends his time collecting art and who has an extraordinary talent for it to boot. It's not that there aren't causes for what happens, but extreme violence and repression really aren't among them. The Irish might disagree possibly, but actually until 1641, it's nothing like the horrors visited on Elizabethan Ireland. Anyway, that's just me busking and meandering. In the words of Mr Gradgrind, let us get back to the facts, and nothing but the facts. Let us advance together, hand in hand, into the personal rule. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Now, having said that the facts can be arranged on Mr. Gradgrind's mantelpiece so as to present Charles as a bit of a poppet, we are going to start with a rather relentless search for personal vengeance on his behalf, which honestly is not normally Charles's jam, but is on occasion, it has to be said. To make the nine vipers of Parliament pay for their defiance and, in his view, their willful destruction of the Parliament, Charles would have to play around with the law in a way that does indeed rather smack of the tyrant, even if on a relatively small scale. Principal amongst said vipers were John Eliot, Denzel Hollis and Benjamin Valentine. And it transpired that they had all met together at the Three Cranes Inn in London and planned the whole event. So Hollis and Valentine arrived early and sat close to the Speaker's chair so they could hold Finchy down at the right moment. Miles Hobart was primed and ready to rush to the door to lock Black Rod out. John Selden was also incarcerated, as was a man called William Strode. Now, William Strode will play a role later in our story. Strode was noted for saying what he thought and was not one for sitting on the fence. Clarendon called him one of the fiercest men of the party and one of those ephori who most avowed the curbing and suppressing of majesty. Ephors were apparently elected leaders in ancient Sparta. It is so hard to follow 17th century quotes without a proper classical and biblical education. 
Simmons Dews describes Strode as a firebrand and a notable profaner of the scriptures. Always a bad sign, obviously. And one with too hot a tongue. Now, Charles wanted people like Strode to suffer. Though, again, this is small-scale punishment. He didn't take them outside and have them tortured and killed or anything. What he wanted was for them to be fined and submit to his will, to be publicly humiliated for their defiance and admit his majesty. He had a few legal problems, though, against which all of this played out. So the prisoners were all held in the King's Bench Prison, awaiting a trial, through which Charles planned to bring his fury and fire down on their unbowed heads in exemplary punishment. The first legal niggle came to light immediately. They were hauled up in front of the Privy Council. Many of them, Elliot, Selden and Valentine among them, simply refused to answer the questions, the cheeky monkeys, because they claimed all these events had happened in Parliament, whereas everyone surely knew they were protected by parliamentary privilege to say exactly what they liked. Oh, and by the way, according to that petition of right, you have to give us due cause as to why you have imprisoned us anyway, if you don't mind, sire. Hmm. Back to the drawing board. Charles had charges made in Star Chamber instead and summoned the judges. Distressingly, rather than being nicely compliant, they were all rather inclined to agree with the prisoners. Now, this was inconvenient. Keeping them in prison nonetheless, Charles thought again, only to be faced with a writ of habeas corpus from the prisoners. Under that darned petition of right, he was required to say why he'd throw them all in the marshalsea. So Charles decided to oblige and brought charges against them to the king's bench under common law for notable contempt committed by them against ourself and our government and for stirring sedition against us. Mm, that didn't get him any further. This is the trouble with lefty lawyers, you see. They can be sticklers for the, you know, law. Well, your madge, they said. Trouble is, there's no such thing as sedition in common law, so that's not sufficient reason to hold them. Despite pouring pressure on the judges, it became clear to Charles that his glorious public show trial was going nowhere, and that against his wishes, they would grant his prisoners bail. So, Charles cheated, as you do. He took them out of the Marshalsea prison and put them into the Tower of London, which was out of the jurisdiction of the King's Bench. What to do next? Charles tried to deal with his vipers. He must have their submission, but OK, if you give a bond of £1,000 for good behaviour, I'll let you out on bail. Now, the point of that tactic is that by signing the bond, essentially they admitted they had done wrong. And at this point, several of them, Denzel Hollis, bailed, as it were, gave the bond and ran for home running fast as they can. Selden, Elliot, Valentine and Strode all stuck it out and demanded to be given bail as a right, not in return for submission. Charles returned to the King's Bench and made the most dodgy move of all. He essentially told the judges what their prisoners' offences were and demanded that they sentence them without a trial or else. Refusal would clearly be very and immediately career-limiting. Just to make the point, he fired one of the judges anyway, John Walter. And this time the judges broke, and in February 1630, almost a year since they'd been jailed initially, all the prisoners were sentenced to large fines and imprisonment at the king's pleasure. 
Charles could now keep them under lock and key until they publicly submitted. In 1631, Miles Hobart gave the required sureties and declarations. In 1634, four years later, Selden did the same. Elliot, though, refused to submit. He continued to write, as he normally did, including a political tract, which was really very compatible with James I's philosophy, as he wrote, Both king and law were ordained by God, and therefore both were due reverence. They are really not revolutionary tracts at all, and as John Morrill said, they therefore gave the later Whig historians a bit of a problem. They really don't look very revolutionary. And it transpires that really Eliot's aim in Parliament was simply to re-establish what he saw as the existing rights of the people, not to launch a crusade for new liberties or reduce the royal authority. But meanwhile, Charles was describing Eliot to the French ambassador as a Republican, once more demonstrating his inability to understand the minds of those who disagreed with him and to understand that his political opponents might well be sincere in what they said. Eliot developed a wasting sickness during his long imprisonment in jail. So Charles moved him to a room without a fire, which really was mean-minded and petty of him. Also, borderline murderous. Eliot died in 1632, and when his family asked for his body so they could bury him, Charles nastily insisted he be buried in the parish where he died, in London, therefore, and his family went home empty-handed. Benjamin Valentine and William Strode continued to hold out and would not be released until 1640 for their pains. So, a couple of things about this. If you're looking to build a case against Charles I as a tyrant in search of absolutism, it's not just his nastiness in pursuing these folks. It shows that as far as he was concerned, the law must bend before the will of the king if the king sees due cause for it. Secondly, when Parliament returned in 1641, it would remember all of this. It would not be forgotten. Strode, in particular, would align himself with John Pym and speak bitterly against the royal prerogative. Those that survived were voted compensation in 1641 and the judgments would be reversed in 1667 after the restoration. The issues inherent in the case explain two of the classes in the Bill of Rights under Mary II in 1689 that judges should not question any proceedings in Parliament and that no judge can be dismissed save by an address passed by a two-thirds majority in both Houses of Parliament. Now then, I think we should talk about the prospects of this government because it appears that people were aware at the time of something significant having happened. Though I fear I am being a little black and white, it's by no means clear how wide and deep the view went that we were in for a long stint without Parliament. And given that the King had no absolute obligation to call a Parliament anyway, the vast majority of people were probably not sitting around all the time asking, where's Parliament then? Nonetheless, in contemplating a world without Parliaments, Charles would have to assess his options. Broadly speaking, he would find at court and on his Privy Council people aligning around two very broad policy axes. Before I go on, a health warning is required. Hard and fast rules don't exist. Most involved in the political nation would hold a range of views and might align with one group on one issue and with others elsewise. And there's no single programme here. However, 
the idea of broad alignments is quite helpful. And central to alignment was foreign policy. And before I launch into that, bear in mind that for many years the major objective of English diplomacy had been to reunite the husband of Charles's sister Elizabeth Stuart, Frederick, with his position as elector of the Palatinate. There were three reasons for that. One, wounded family pride. Two, the need to support a Protestant ruler ousted by a Catholic emperor. And three, because Elizabeth and her children were at this point Charles's heirs, because he and Henrietta Maria as yet had to produce issue. I mean, their marriage had been full of issues, but no issue, if you understand. They remain as yet without sprog. OK, so over the last five years, it has been a moderate grouping on the Privy Council which tended to come out ahead. We have spoken frequently under James and Charles of the Patriot Party, a grouping generally oriented towards supporting Protestant abroad to the point of military intervention, the sort of people like Pembroke who supported expeditions to liberate La Rochelle. By and large, that often went hand in hand with a moderate policy as regards Parliament to try to work with them. Partly, that's because to fight international wars you need lots of cash, for which Parliament had generally been the source, but also probably because often they were Protestants in Parliament in orientation, and more particularly Calvinist or Puritan. However, over time, this grouping is now losing influence. The argument has gone against it, after all, as far as calling Parliament is concerned, and their most influential members, Pembroke, died in 1630, Viscount Dorchester in 1632, and Archbishop Abbott in 1633. The faction are not entirely out of it yet. They'll get a bit of a boost from Gustavus Adolphus, as we'll do in a, an episode's time or so. When it comes to foreign friends, they align with the Dutch, but also often with the French now that La Rochelle business is done, because the French appeared to be the only people with the grunt to take on the evil empires, Spain and the imperial Habsburgs. The other orientation lay around priests and friendship with Spain. Why take them on? Why not be friends with them? After all, if you really want to put Elizabeth back into the Palatinate, it's the Habsburgs who own the key. The main figure in this grouping at court was Richard Weston, had been made Lord Treasurer in 1628. Weston had been very close to Buckingham and was now close to William Lord. He carried out a personal correspondence with Count Olivares, First Minister in Spain for many years. Not only did he favour a foreign policy aligned with Spain, but he was strongly opposed to accommodation with Parliament and had not been shy of saying so during the last Parliament. He was an architect of the new council's policy and his financial and administrative skills would prove an absolute godsend to the personal rule. Also tended towards Catholicism and indeed would convert before his death and so did many of his supporters and protégés. He was a great friend of Thomas Howard, Earl of Arundel, a Protestant but from a famous Catholic family and Charles's art collector friend. Francis Cottington, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, had spent years in Spain and was almost a naturalised Spaniard, and he was witty, flamboyant, cosmopolitan and a serious politician, and he would also die a Catholic. So, to stress again, many would combine these different views in different combinations. There are no black and whites here, no rage of parties. But at one extreme, orientation around Spain, 
personal rule, Arminianism or Catholicism. At the other end, orientation towards Protestantism, Parliament, the Dutch and France. The France versus Spain thing, which gets even more acute once France enters the Thirty Years' War, puts me in mind of a quick anecdote I came across, if I can indulge you, or indeed, if you can indulge me. It concerns one of the English diplomats floating around. John, Viscount Scudamore, was for many years Charles's ambassador in Gay Paris. Now, there were many noblemen who specialised in working and representing England abroad and had all the skills, but by and large, we are still very much in amateur land. Any man with the right social chops might be sent abroad to lie for their country. One of these rather inexperienced figures was John Viscount Scudamore, Charles's ambassador to Gay Paris. I get the very strong impression that ambitious though he was, this was really not Scudamore's natural game. Naturally, he was an odd appointment because he favoured alliance with Spain rather than with France. Anyway, in 1635, the much more dynamic Robert Sidney, Earl of Leicester, arrived on a special embassy to France. Robert Sidney was, incidentally, the father to Algernon Sidney, philosopher and darling of the good old cause. Just a thing. Anyway, Robert Sidney was not impressed with Scudamore when he arrived in Paris. He speaks French as if he'd learned it in Herefordshire, and thinks he never has respect enough, and yet endeavours not to deserve it at all. A rather brutal takedown, and it did make me laugh. Scudamore did in fact, of course, come from Herefordshire, and so why not speak French in his local idiom, I ask you? But I suspect he found all the vagaries of diplomacy a bit much for him, and again, really not his natural game, and did his head in. He once sighed mournfully to Francis Windebank, the Secretary of State, oh, that the affairs of the Palatinate were settled, that we might have nothing to do with these dons or messieurs. That made me laugh too. I mean, not a man designed for the subtle world of diplomacy. Anyway, Sidney didn't have a too great a time in France either because his king refused to countenance actually going to war to re-establish Elizabeth and decided to agree purely on negotiation. Sidney fumed at the impotence of this policy, which had failed to deliver any tangible results for over ten years, and gave his opinion that the diseases of Christendom are not to be cured like the king's evil with touching, but with striking. It's an interesting quote and points to a fundamental problem. Without money, why would anyone take notice of the English? And while Charles seems to have viewed the new world of personal rule with very happy eyes, foreign ambassadors saw the situation rather differently when they understood how English finances worked. The Venetian resident in London, Alvise Contarini, whose journals are regularly harvested for good quotes, remarked that the 1629 dissolution meant that England may be considered no longer existing in the world for she will be impotent for good or harm, and will have to attend to domestic affairs and the means to raising money. His successor that very same year, Soranzo, rather acidly watched his French rival, Louis' ambassador, Charles de Lobespine, strutting his stuff and belittling English impotence. For Soranzo, he was enjoying it all a little bit too much, and strongly suspected some secret satisfaction in him as if this comparison with France only made the glories of France more resplendent. 
Nonetheless, Soranzo would probably have agreed with Lobespine's description of the English as poor folk who can do neither good nor harm. This was England's and Charles's new position in the world order. But first, Charles was to put his own house in order, his court. We will come to that in the next episode. Until then, I would like to thank you all very much for listening. After all, it would make no point at all without you all. I hope you're enjoying things still, and I'd love to hear your thoughts, comments, questions, so do get in touch on Facebook, through reviews, or the website. And don't forget that given the girth of the geese at the moment, you might think about hopping along to the website and buying a year's membership as a prezi for one of your loved ones. Just a thought. Anyway, good luck everyone, and have a great week. infant formula companies use organic grass-fed whole milk instead of skim why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing we wondered the same thing so we made byheart a better formula for formula learn more at byheart.com